Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask that you would come now and uh, make the mountains that might block the rising of your sun from our face uh, to be leveled down. And I pray that the valleys where we might be sunk down so low we can't see the rising sun would be lifted up. And I pray that any twisted way that is delaying our arrival at your presence would be straightened. And I pray that the glory of the Lord would be seen by all the flesh in this room. And that any who is dead spiritually and unable to see spiritual reality or see it as beautiful, that you would raise the dead. And that Christians who have dried up or sunk in their discouragements would be quickened and that your glory would become the supreme treasure of our lives so that we might make much of it at work, at play, at home, in church and then eternally in your presence in the new heavens and the new earth. So I ask that as, as uh, Rory and I speak your word, it would run and triumph here and far beyond Katoomba, across Australia and far beyond for decades to come. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So what I'm going to do in my three messages is talk about three of the discoveries that I've made in my life that have been most uh, shaping of the way I think about everything and the way I do ministry, the way I do my fathering and my husbanding and, and everything else. These are three discoveries that most of them were made between the ages of uh, 22 and 25. Those were the epoch-making years of my life in terms of paradigm shifting and the discovery of things that would shape the rest of my life. And not much has altered in what I discovered in those days. I've simply been trying to go deeper and apply farther what the Lord, through some really key teachers and through some really key dead teachers and His Word, showed me in those days. So I'm going to mention what those are now. I'll give you the, just a, I'll make a statement about each of the three, and then we'll tackle the first one, and then tomorrow morning the, the next one, and so on. Number one is that God is radically God-centered. Christ is pervasively Christ-exalting. God does everything He does from beginning to end to magnify His greatness. He is relentlessly self-exalting. And this is really good news. That's the first point. The, the second message then uh, tries to draw out some implications of that, namely that God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in Him. And if that's true, if I can show you that biblically and persuade your heart, 
as well as your head, you will be freed to 24-7 for the rest of your life pursue your fullest and longest happiness. In fact, I will argue you dare not not pursue it. It will be sin not to pursue it because God is most glorified in you when you engage in that pursuit, even though it may cost you your life. That's number two. And number three is that a life of love or a life of risk, a life of sacrifice to others is laying down your life, however God calls you to do that, is rooted precisely in the radical pursuit of your own happiness. Now those three theses are counterintuitive. Um, all three of them. The fact that God's God-centeredness or Christ's relentless calling of us to make much of Him is good for us is not what people feel at first. Kind of like off-putting that God would be self-exalting. We shouldn't be self-exalting. So if He is, and we don't like ourselves and we are, then we wouldn't like Him either, would we? So it's just there's there's some things that are a little bit tricky to figure out, and that's what I was. It took me about three years to just kind of make my way through these things, and then the rest of my life to try to just continually see them and purify them. The the other two are also counterintuitive because that that God's being glorified and people being loved should happen through my pursuit of my happiness is not the way we usually think. We usually think just the opposite. I should restrain my desire to be happy so that I can glorify God and so that I can love people. And I'm going to argue that's exactly backwards. So that's where we're going. And I hope you'll, you'll listen and that God will meet us and teach us from his word. And, and I'll, I'll just say right off, you know this already, but I'll, I'll say it to make sure you know I know it. Um, be good Bereans. Remember, they were more noble than the Thessalonians because, or the Thessalonians, because uh, they they went home from the synagogue and they and they opened their scriptures and they tested these things to see if they were so. So it doesn't really matter what John Piper thinks; it matters infinitely what God thinks, and we only have one access to what God thinks, and that is right here. And so, if I can show you here these three things, then you should believe them and you should spend the rest of your life trying to come to terms with their implications for your life. But if I can't, then you shouldn't believe them and uh, you should go on and listen to Rory. <laughs> so here we are, number one, namely that God is radically, pervasively, profoundly, centrally God-exalting. God is a God-exalting being. Now, here's the way I'm going to come at this. I'm going to give you four or five stories of people who, when they have seen that in the church or in the Bible, have abandoned the faith because of it. And you'll know some of these people. And 
I, I start this way so that you will feel the, the magnitude of this and the weight of it and how dangerous it is. I mean, why would, why would I even focus on this? I mean, I've focused on this for a lifetime. This has been my life. To say these things, this, one, this first one especially, has been what my life is about. And now I'm going to start with stories about how this has driven people away. And I'm quite aware that as I begin to talk, people are driven away. And, and some don't come back. And so it's risky to do what I'm doing. But uh, if, you don't, if you don't feel the risk, I don't think you'll just feel the weight of it. I, I, I don't like talking about things that are just ho-hum. Life is just too big. We get one shot at life. I have a good friend named, named John in Pakistan right now who emailed me yesterday that his best friend was kidnapped and he's pleading with me to pray. This is where I live. For all I know, he could be lying somewhere with no head on because a horrible knife was used to slit his throat. I just am not into this, you know, frothy things. I, I want to say things that are, that are, that, that when I see them in the Bible, they just shock me. They just shock me. They're edgy. And so I'm not looking for simple things. I'm looking for comfortable things. I'm looking for the things that are right up on the edge of tolerance. And this is, this is one of them. God is radically God-centered. Now here's some stories. Eric Reese, which you probably never heard of, no reason you should have, I suppose he teaches environmental journalism and writing and literature at the University of Kentucky in America. And um, in, in 2009, he published a book called An American Gospel on Family History and the Kingdom of God. And in it, he said something that shocked even a national public radio uh, religion editor who brought him onto the radio, which is where I heard the interview when I went on, on, somebody told me about it, and I went on, punched the, you know, the online replay and, and listened and wrote down what he said so you could hear it. Um, what, he, what he wrote on page 28 of his book was, first of all, Matthew 10, 37 to 39. Now, he, here's a little background. This man grew up in a fundamentalist home, just like I did. He rebelled against it and threw it all away. He's not a believer anymore. I loved it. I loved my parents. You know, we, 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 it, these are the happiest Christians I've ever known. Usually fundamentalists are thought of as being um, dour and uh, unhappy and negative and, and uh, life is once a, a, a bunch of don'ts. And my dad used to say, do so fast you don't have time to don't. <laughs> that, that was the spirit I, I, I grew up in. You should be doing so fast you don't have time to don't. And... And therefore, I never, you know, felt like the fact that he didn't take me to movies when I was little was, was a bother at all. And when I was in the eighth grade and uh, we were rewarded to go see a movie because we had the best attendance. And I said to mom and dad, uh, what should I do? They said, you decide. And that's the way they were. They, they were just anyway, you don't need to hear about my background, but he he grew up in, in that kind of home and he threw it all away. So. I wrote him a long letter after I read this. I said, look, he never responded to me, but I wrote him and told him everything I'm going to tell you uh, to say you, you don't have to go the direction you went. There is another way to go. But he, he wrote, he, he, wrote his, he quoted Jesus, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. This is Jesus talking now. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life 
will find it. And here's what Eric Reese wrote. Who is this egomaniac speaking these words? Now, that's what Terry Gross, the religion editor on NPR read. She said, whoa, calling Jesus an egomaniac. Let's interview this guy. And so he interviewed him, and she said, she quoted in that sentence and said, do you have any response? You want to elaborate on that? And here's what he said. I, I jotted it down from the verbal uh, NPR interview. Well, it just struck me as, who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him more so than we should love our own fathers or sons? It just seemed incredibly egomaniacal kind of claim to make. So there's one snapshot of a man who listens to Jesus say, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and says, you're an egomaniac. And you've got to sympathize a little bit, don't you? I mean, if you said that, I'd, I'd call you an egomaniac. If, if you said, yeah, you, you have to love me more than you love your dad, John, I'd say, who are you? Which is what he's saying to Jesus. People stumble over this. They, they really do. They stumble over these incredible um, self-exalting ways that Jesus talks. That's number one, Eric Reese. Another one is C.S. Lewis. Now, everybody knows C.S. Lewis. He was converted when he was 29. And before he was 29, what he said was that when he read the Psalms, and I'll give you a long quote later when he comes around. He, he, he gets his way over this hump, but for a long while, this was a huge blockage, just like it is for Eric Reese. He said when, when he read the Psalms, and you know the Psalms are just filled with praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And he knows that Christians believe those are inspired by God. So God is saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. And he wrote that this sounded to him like the craving of an old woman who wanted compliments. That's what he said. So he, he was, he, he said, why would I want a God who's just constantly saying, I need your praise, I need your praise, I need your praise. Because I'm inserting the word need because that's the way he was feeling it. And so C.S. Lewis um, couldn't get over it until God did something. That's number two. Number three, there was a man uh, who writes for the Financial Times, I don't know if he still does, of London, uh, who in 2003, that's when I tore it out um, and copied it, in the London Financial Times, he wrote a book review, and in the book review, this is what he, he said. Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. So his writing is a total pagan, unbeliever. He doesn't go to church, he doesn't understand, he doesn't care about church or religion. Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself, why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all those people on their knees every Sunday? Why were you singing heartily to him, making much of him? Don't you know he's just a, a, an immoral tyrant who needs adulation in order to be complete? That's Michael Prowse. 
when he, when he hears the, the call for worship, worship, he says, I, I don't get it. So, 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 so many people who just hear these central things and they just say, don't get it. Don't make any, it doesn't make any sense. Most of you know Oprah, one of our less helpful exports, I think. Um, <laughs> Oprah Winfrey um, grew up in a Christian atmosphere. Uh, and she um, left it into a kind of spirituality that's more broad. And here's what she said happened. Here's what she said. I, I, somebody told me about this, and I went and listened to this interview. She was in a church service when she was 27 or 28 years old. She didn't remember which, but right there. So some of you probably. And she was um, a professing believer, and there were things about God she really liked. Um, and that's what was being talked about until suddenly something was said that killed it. Then he said... The Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was caught up in rapture of that moment until he said, jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28, and I was thinking, God is all, God is omnipotent, God is also jealous. A jealous God is jealous of me. And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. Because I believe God is a God of love and that God is in all things. And that was the end of her official Christian presence in church. Exodus thirty four fourteen says, You shall worship the Lord your God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. The Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God, Deuteronomy 4.24. So yes, Oprah, he's jealous, which means he gets very angry when he doesn't have 100% of your affections. If you start sharing your affections around like a wife sharing her affections around with other men, your heavenly husband is going to get very angry. And she didn't like that. It's like God saying he has to have all my, he can't share any of my affections. He has to have it all for himself. He's jealous. She, do, she was finished. She just stumbled right over that, that stumbling stone. One last story or illustration. Um, Brad Pitt, that is, the uh, movie guy. Uh, this this is more recent. I didn't know this. Somebody pointed this out to me. People are always pointing out to me these things, and that's how I accumulate these these stories. Um, he he was interviewed by Parade magazine a couple of years ago, and he too grew up in a conservative Christian home. And uh, here's what he said: as a Southern Baptist, that's what I grew up in. Uh, religion works. I know there's comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and tell you there's something bigger than you and it's going to be all right in the end. It, it works because it's comforting. I grew up believing in it and it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was. But it didn't last for me. 
And then if you ask why, here's what he said. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best. And then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense. So I'm here to try to help it make sense. In fact, I'm going to push on it until it's coming out your ears that God is as self-exalting as they say he is and more, way more. They've seen a little of his God-centeredness and they've stumbled over it. And then I'm going to just argue from the Bible it's the best news in all the world for us. In fact, I'm going to argue it's really close to the center of our faith. And you know that the center of our faith is the cross of Christ, where God sent Jesus into the world and he dies for sinners and he rises again. And it's the core of our, our hope. Our sins are forgiven there and our righteousness is provided there and eternal life is obtained there. The cross is the crux. And you're saying that the centrality of God in his own affections is close to the center. And I'm saying, yes, indeed, because it's, it's where God's God-centeredness and my rebellion meet that creates the need for the cross. And I'm going to argue creates the deepest intelligibility of the cross. The cross makes most sense if you see God's God-centeredness and the nature of your sin. So that's our, our task. It's a very, very big deal. Now, I mentioned that my story was when I grew up in my parents' home, they were believers and saturated me with the Bible. So the, one of the texts that was the most common for me to hear from my dad or see at the end of a, a letter where he'd sign Daddy and put a verse under it, was 1 Corinthians 10.31. Johnny, whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But there's one thing I never heard my dad say. And I, I think if he listened to me all the way through, he would have agreed. But I never heard him say, God does everything for the glory of God. And I think that's really important to say. And here's one of the reasons, and then I'll try to prove it from the scriptures. Um, what I find all over the country and, and some around the world, I don't get to a lot of places, but some, is that a lot of people think it's good for us to be God-centered and they really stumble over God being God-centered. So right for me to say you should be God-centered, but... If I say God is God-centered, that doesn't sound quite right. And, and that message that God is God-centered, I think, lands on us. This is the way it functioned for me and has for a lot of people as a kind of spiritual test as to whether your God-centeredness is a cloak for me-centeredness. And the way it's a cloak for me-centeredness, and you test yourself right now, is that if you are God-centered because you've been taught and believe that he is you-centered, then your God-centeredness is just a form of me-centeredness. 
if what you most like about God is that he likes you, you're me-centered. So I think it's a, a real test to throw out on congregations the God-centeredness of God to see how they respond. Because if you don't work your way through your negative response to that, the negative response might be a symptom that your God-centeredness is really all about you. And until you come to thrill at God's God-centeredness, there might be a defect in your faith. So here we are at the Bible now, okay? We need we see Bible under all of this because if it's not in the Bible, it doesn't really matter what I say. So here's, here's the way we're going to put Bible under it for the next little while. Um, I'm going to walk you through maybe six um, high points of redemptive history from predestination to consummation, and then maybe go back and string, sprinkle in a few other historical points. And, the, and the, the aim is this, and you should just be watching for this and asking if it's so, is to show you that at every point along the way, and, and I'll leave out a lot of them, God intentionally says to us, I am doing this for my sake. I'm doing this for my sake. I'm doing this for my sake. Okay? That's what I'm looking for. What I find in the Bible is a unremitting, relentless intention of God to show that everything he does, he does to make himself look great. That's what I'm going to argue. So let's start in eternity past with predestination. Namely, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And you can either look these up or, or jot them down and look them up later or just listen. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So he adopted us into his family for himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So grammatically... Reality is portrayed here. And what's ultimate grammatically? This little prepositional phrase in verse 6, and that's what's ultimate in reality. I love the way I'm a pastor <coughs> who does exposition for a living, and therefore I love it when I find in these nitty-gritty things called conjunctions and nouns and adjectives and verbs and prepositions and prepositional phrases, massive realities talked about. So here we have, he predestined us to what end? Well, that we might be adopted into his family. How did he do it? He did it through Jesus Christ. What does it accord with? It accords with the kind intention of his will. To what end did he do all of that? Unto the praise of the glory of His grace. He did it to get praise. He did it to get our praise. He did it for His name to be exalted. His, specifically here, the character of His grace to be exalted. 
We will spend eternity making much of God and His grace. He will be the focus of everything. And He should be now. Because that's what He designed the world for. Okay, let's go to number two, creation. So we started with predestination. Now we're moving up into time with creation. And I'm going to give you Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So you were created for God's glory. Isaiah 43, verse 7. Whom I created for my glory. That means um, you were created in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Male and female, he created them. In his image, he created you. What does it mean to create something in your image? And theologians, you know, they talk about, is it rational or moral or, or relational? And I say, let's bracket that for a moment. What are images for? <laughs> images are for imaging. Right? If I, if I worked hard and put an image of John Piper here, the point would be to make you think about me. If I drew a picture of John Piper up there and walked away and left it there, I'd say, I want you to think about me. That's, that's why you're on the planet. You are in his image in order to image him to the people who are also in his image and don't know it. That's what images are for. You are there to make him look good. And you don't do it with makeup and buff. (laughs) You do it with character. You do it with radical, loving sacrifice. You do it with what we were trying to say up here earlier about how do you glorify God in your, in your body, but we get to that later. So we, creation, predestination, and now creation, God says he did it for his sake, for his glory. Number three, incarnation. The incarnation. We skipped over <laughs> all the way from creation to incarnation. We can come back and pick up a few highlights in the middle maybe later. Romans 15, 8 and 9. Romans 15, verse 8. I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That means Christ came into the world as a Jew. And he has a reason for fulfilling Jewish promises. And he's coming as a Jewish Messiah. He came as a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. So his first purpose for incarnation is confirm the promises given. In other words, say God is trustworthy. God keeps his promises. And here's the the last piece. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So he became a servant to the circumcision to do two things to vindicate God's promises, and to see to it that the nations, the Gentiles, glorify God for his mercy to them. So predestination, creation, incarnation, uh, 
remember, maybe all, a lot of you memorized it like I did when you were a kid. Behold, I bring you good news this Christmas time. Uh, because unto you this day will be born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those with whom he is pleased. So the angels on the night of God's entrance into the universe through the birth of Jesus say, glory be to God. They they didn't say, man is incredibly valuable. Look how he's being pursued. They highlighted God's amazing glory that he would send his son to pursue sinners like us. So that's the incarnation. Fourth, propitiation. And I just choose that word because it ends in Asian. And because when it comes to the death of Jesus, there isn't isn't anything much more important than that aspect of his atoning death. Propitiation, when you propitiate somebody, you take away their anger. If somebody's angry at you, their anger needs to be propitiated, and you can do it by saying you're sorry sometimes or paying them or just whatever it takes to, to take their anger away. And that's what happened at the cross. God was, in his great justice, angry at sinners, and Christ absorbs that anger and removes that. So this is really important. And I'm going to, because now we're at, you remember I said that at the center of our faith is the cross. And uh, what happened in the cross for our salvation. And now I'm arguing that the cross or what happened at the cross was one of the most amazing manifestations of God's God-centeredness. And so if you want to look at it in your Bible, it's Romans 3, 25 and 26. Actually, the whole paragraph is crucial going back to 20 through 26. If you were to ask me to vote on my uh, take on the most important paragraph in the Bible. It's risky business to vote like that, but I, I, would, I would vote for this paragraph. Romans three twenty to 26 is probably the most important paragraph in the Bible, but I don't care if you believe that or not. Um, I just care that you believe the truth of it, however you compare it to other texts. So here, here's the text. Remember, verse 23 had said, it's a very famous verse, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I, I draw that in here, even though I'm going to read verses 25 and 26, because defining sin in relation to glory is important for understanding what's coming next and what went before. Because remember, back in chapter 1, verse 23, Paul was saying that all people are under sin and all people are guilty because they know God and though they know him and have seen his, his divine power and, and, and his deity, nevertheless they exchange the glory of God for images. They exchange it. So the glory of God is given to them as their, what? Their enjoyment, their treasure, their satisfaction. It's what they should worship and treasure above all things and they look at it and then they trade it. They trade it. For other things, they exchange, that's the word, they exchange it. Now, if you exchange something, you lack it. And that's the verb used in 323. 
All have sinned and lack the glory of God. It's always translated fall short of the glory of God. And we are about arrows that fall short. That's like, the word is hystereo in Greek. It's lack. You lack the glory of God. And they say, whoa, lack. Well, of course I lack. I'm human. I'm not God. But in the context of, of Romans 1, you just exchanged it. Everybody has. All of you have. You did today. Which means that you've made some choices today that uh, reflected that something else was getting the upper hand in your value structure. You were valuing whatever more than you value your relationship with God. That's what sin is. Sin is the kind of behavior that flows from, at any given moment, treasuring anything more than you treasure God. That's what sin is. So that's a crucial starting place for understanding verses 25 and 26. So let me read these now. Because this, this is God's remedy for you and me, who live that way every day. We sin every day because we don't love God with all of our, all, 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 100% of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's the commandment. That's the number one in the Bible, and we don't do it. So we're all deserving of hell every day, and the only reason we aren't there is these two verses. Romans 3, uh, 25. Whom God displayed, God put Christ forward publicly, as a propitiation by his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, <coughs> or patience, he passed over the sins <coughs> previously committed. Now verse 26. This was the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. So the cross is described in verse 25 as a demonstration of the righteousness of God. So when Christ was executed, and Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. I had a friend one time who worked in a prison ministry. Most of the men had very bad experiences with their dad. And on one Good Friday sermon, he said, who killed Jesus? Vote. Just shout out some names. He said, Pilate killed him. The Jews killed him. Soldiers killed him. And when they were done, he said, no, no, no. His dad killed him. And it was just total silence. And then he preached from Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. So God gave his son for you. He gave his son. And when he, when he took his son's life, what was he doing? It says he was demonstrating his righteousness. He was showing something about himself. He was upholding and vindicating something about himself. Now, why did he need to do that according to this text? And, and the reason is given very, very clearly. It says, because, that's one of my favorite words in the Bible, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. What does that mean? That means throughout the Old Testament, God was forgiving people right and left and punishing them less than they deserved often. For example, David. 
right? David should have been fighting with the army. He's walking on a roof and he sees a naked woman bathing. And he's king. He can do anything he wants. And, and he gets her. And he lies with her. And, and she gets pregnant. But she's married. And her husband is a faithful warrior defending the king who's just raped his wife. And he says, oh man, what am I going to do now? And he calls for Uriah and tries to get Uriah to go down and sleep with her so it looked like his baby. And Uriah, loving the king, this king that just slept with his wife, and loving his calling as a soldier, and knowing that his brothers are risking their lives every hour on the field, won't go down and enjoy his wife. And he sleeps outside the door of the palace. And so David says, well, let's get him drunk and see if we can do it that way. And I mean, this is getting horrible every minute. This is getting worse and worse. David is sinking into the mire of sin. He won't do it. Even drunk, the man's integrity is holding sway. And so he says uh, to Joab, get him killed. Put him to the front and uh, we'll handle it that way. And so Joab does whatever the king says and gets him on the front lines and he gets killed. The note comes back and he says to the messenger, don't worry about it. Some people die this way. Some people die that way. And he marries her. So that the, the time frame, you know, maybe people won't count the months too close. So rape, finagling, murder. And God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And he tells this little parable, remember, about a man who had one sheep and mended several sheep. And the man who had lots of sheep, when he had a guest, went over and took the man who had one sheep and and sacrificed him, and that's like taking the wife. You could have any woman you want. Why'd you take this man's wife, you know? And, uh, and David gets real upset at this man who takes the sheep. And Nathan says, you're the man. It's very dangerous. Prophets don't have good jobs. <laughs> that's really dangerous to say to the king, you're, you're the man that you hate. And, and the next thing out of... Um, Nathan's mouth after David wilts is the Lord has taken away your sin. That's, that's what it means here when it says because in his forbearance, in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. There were millions of those. Millions of them. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Every single act of forgiveness in the Old Testament was not accomplished by those bulls and goats. Which means that for centuries, injustice in the universe was mounting up. Not in the way America thinks about it, and probably not in the way Australia thinks about it, but just the opposite. God was looking more and more unrighteous because he did not punish the likes of David. I mean, imagine yourself being Uriah's father. I have four sons. <laughs> if President Obama took Molly or Leslie or Shelley or Melissa, my four sons' wives, and slept with them, 
and got them pregnant and then tried to get my boys who in integrity wouldn't sleep with them and then had them killed in Iraq. And along comes somebody and says, we'll just let it go this time. He's forgiven. Stay in his office. No, no repercussions, which is what happened to David. Well, there were some repercussions. The baby died. But he didn't, he didn't lose his job. He didn't go to jail. He didn't get his head chopped off like he should have. I would be furious. I would call that massive injustice. Massive injustice. And it is. God had to solve the problem of his own unrighteousness. That's where this verse comes from. God's main problem in the world is how he can be just and treat people so well, which is the opposite of the problem America thinks he has, right? They're always in his face about how bad he's treating the world with a hurricane or an earthquake or something. God, God does no human being any wrong. Every breath you take is undeserved. If we all got wiped out here, he would have done nobody any wrong. None. If we suffered the worst torture on the way to death, he would have done us no wrong. So, God was viewed in God's sight as massively unjust apart from some way to vindicate his righteousness. And the reason his righteousness was compromised is this. If sin is a falling short of the glory of God, or a lacking, or a despising, or a belittling of the glory of God, which it is, verse 23, then every time God passes over a sin, he's acting as though his glory had no value. Doesn't matter. We just sweep it under the rug. Doesn't matter. You can trample my glory in the dirt every day and there'll be no consequence. That is radically unjust. It's wrong. And so what does God do? It says he puts Christ forward to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. It was a demonstration. So what Christ's death means is that God hates sin and loves his righteousness and his glory. I will vindicate my glory. I will show my anger at sin. And I will save sinners in such a way that their salvation in no way belittles my glory or compromises my righteousness. So I'm arguing that the cross is the central demonstration of God's God-centeredness. It is the place where most magnificently he vindicates his righteousness. He elevates the value of his glory by making the vindication of it the price of the infinitely valuable Son of God. And as Christ goes down into the grave through suffering and agony, the value of God's glory that has been trampled on for centuries goes up. And Christ knew exactly what he was doing. And if you read the Gospel of John, chapter 12, chapter 17, he talks about, he said, the time is, my hour has come. Glorify yourself, Father. That's propitiation. Fourth, sanctification. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11 are Paul's prayer, 
of what he's praying for the Philippians. And when you pray, you're talking to God, so you're asking God to do this. Let me read you what he asks for. This is Philippians 1.9. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may be, I'm jumping to verse 11, so that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So collapse that down and get it clear. I'm praying, Father, for the Philippians, and I'm asking you through Jesus to fill them with fruits of righteousness that come to the praise of your name. So I'm asking you to make happen here what will bring praise to you. So there's the God-centeredness of sanctification. Sanctification is when we find fruits of righteousness growing in our lives. We're becoming more holy. And Paul says, God, make that happen for you. Make that happen for your glory. Philippians 1, 11. And lastly, in our pilgrimage through redemptive history, let's just jump from sanctification all the way to the end of history, consummation. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Jesus is going to come back. Hasten the day, Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Why is he coming? Why is he coming? You can put it in a sentence and I'll, I'll let Paul do that. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes. He's talking about unbelievers. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So he's coming for those reasons, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at. So he's coming to get marvel. He's coming to get the praise of his glory. Jesus is coming, and he fully expects, anticipates, and will demand, glorify me, marvel at me. So I conclude from those six passages of Scripture, and there are dozens and dozens more. In fact, I don't know how many serious readers there are out there, but I'll tell you the book that blew me away and turned my world upside down, and it was written 250 years ago by Jonathan Edwards called The End for Which God Created the World. You can get it at Amazon for 98 cents. It's part of uh, a Kindle. Um, it, it's part of, you can get the whole works for 298. I mean, it's just incredible. So you go to Amazon Kindle, and you don't have to have a Kindle. You can just you know, download the program, put it on your Mac or whatever, or PC, and, and uh, you got two volumes of the greatest things that have ever been written. Jonathan Edwards for $3. It's just absolutely unbelievable. I just feel like, where, where was that all my life? Why did I have to pay $80 a volume for 26 volumes of Edwards' works from the Yale University Press? Um, you don't have to. Um, but there it is. The end for which God created the world. That has text after text after text to show you what I just gave you with six texts. Um, and I have lots more written here. I think I am going to skip over them, though, since it would be good to, to get to the, the concluding point. Um, I said at the beginning that that's good news. Good news that God from beginning to end 
is radically God-exalting. Now, C.S. Lewis, who stumbled over this and said it sounded like an old woman needing compliments, um, is the one who helped me most in, in 1968 and 69 when I was struggling with this the most. And I'm going to read you the key quote from Lewis. This comes from his book, Reflection on the Psalms. And what he says here was the key that unlocked the love of God for me in his self-centeredness. I believe that what I just shared in the last 30 minutes or so of God's radical God-centeredness is love to me. And the key for seeing how can that possibly be is found in this quote from Lewis. So I'll read it. It's longish, but and then I'll stop and explain it and, and we'll be done. And then we'll pick it up tomorrow. Here's what he said. The most obvious fact about praise, because what, remember what he was stumbling over was God was constantly saying, praise me, praise me, praise me in the Psalms. The most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. This is 29 years it escaped him. Some of you may be in that category. You may be 28 years old, and the, the, the sensibleness of Christianity may just escaped you, and, and this may be the conference where things fall into place. Whether God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praised most while the cranks and misfits and malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, they also spontaneously urge others to join them. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else that we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy now here we're getting right to the heart of the matter. This is, this is the sentence that blew me away. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. 
That was the key. I'll keep reading though. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Is he right that praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment? Um, I think he is. If he is, and if God is the most glorious, most beautiful, most admirable, most amazing being in the universe or in reality, and we were made to see him, know him, love him, enjoy him, admire him, value him, be satisfied in him, then for God to continually lift himself up for us to see and then to tell us how to bring our pleasure to consummation in him is not egomania. It's love. That's my answer. He is. Psalm 1611. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm using these two gestures here because you're going to pick them up tomorrow. Fullness forever. God. In your presence is fullness of joy. Your presence, your presence, your beauty. I see you. I know you. I'm with you. I'm watching you. You are fully satisfying and it never stops. It just gets better and better. It goes on and on. You never get boring at all, ever, because you're infinite. There are resources of wonder in you that will surprise me every day of eternity. I will never be bored with you. I will always be satisfied in you. I will increase in my delight in you. That, if that's true, then the most loving thing you can do is lift yourself up for me, oh God. Don't ever let yourself become obscure to me. Keep demonstrating how magnificent you are in history and in the universe, in my life. Let the heavens declare your glory in front of me. Let the cross center your glory. Let all the historical acts of history display your glory. Don't go invisible on me. Stay visible to me because you're made to satisfy my soul and... Go ahead, keep telling me to praise you, because if praise doesn't just express but completes my joy, then I want all the joy possible. So keep telling me and reminding me and helping me to praise you. This, this is not... I'll, I'll close by, by summing it up like this. Um, God, God's God-centeredness or God's self-exaltation is not egomania. It is love. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most virtuous and loving act. You dare not copy him in this. It's idolatry. Adam and Eve tried to. That was their mistake. God alone can love us by lifting up himself. We copy him by lifting up him, not by lifting up ourselves.
We were made to know him and love him. When he lifts up himself, he lifts up beauty for us to see and know and admire and love, be satisfied by. And when he summons us to praise him, he says, now bring that to consummation. It may seem counterintuitive, but I don't, I don't think it is. Um, well, yes, it is counterintuitive, but it's not counterreality. So maybe the last sentence I should say is this one. The reason God seeks our praise, unlike Eric Reese said, the reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be God until he gets it, but we won't be happy until we give it, which is why it is love. Now, here's where we're going tomorrow. Not only do we find joy in God, but we make the discovery from the Bible that our finding joy in God is the way by which he is glorified. Which means that we should pursue our happiness maximally and eternally all the time, without exception. So, Father, I pray now that you will open our eyes to see these things. If, if your God-centeredness and your commitment to uphold your glory is a new thought, I pray that all of these young people would test this biblically and find it there if it's there. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would be active all over Katumba. In, these, in this evening and in these days, opening the eyes of our heart to see what is really there in your word and in your world and in your character. And so shape us, O oh God, according to these things. Make us humble and make yourself great in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.